I'm Diane Lee, and this is Never Forget What They Did. On March 12, 2020, the WHO declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. In July 2020, the Australian government actively prevented its citizens and permanent residents returning home from overseas or interstate. When we got back, they locked us up and made us pay. These are our stories because we must never forget what they did. Judy and her partner, a Kiwi, moved to New Zealand in November 2019. With family in both countries, it was their intention to go back and forth between the two. Stuck in New Zealand in 2020 when the pandemic was declared, she rode it out there, not anticipating it would go on for as long as it did. It wasn't until 2021 when New Zealand and Australia established a travel bubble and her partner had come back to Australia for work that Judy attempted to return. She packed up her home and gave up her job in anticipation of the bubble staying open. It didn't. This is Judy's story. So, so November 2019, my partner and I moved to New Zealand. He's a, he's a New Zealander. We, we moved there with the intention um, of coming backwards and forwards with, between our families. So then got stuck there without the, the the freedom to come backwards and forwards yeah I think at, at the start um, I felt I felt stranded um I felt disconnected so, oh god my family's over there managing it all without me but I didn't think it would last as long as it did and I didn't think it would end up how it did um I think none of us at the time had that that vision of, of what it was going to end up being so it was like oh wow this is something new I'm, I'm feeling a bit stranded but I'm okay and, and just watched I guess from a distance for a while because New Zealand kind of managed things similar to Australia in as much as they closed borders as well. Do you remember Morrison's media conference on March 18? Look, yeah, vaguely. Um, I guess at the time I was more focused on the New Zealand announcements because that's what I was living. And what was New Zealand saying about it at the time? Oh, look, Jacinda's obviously um, a very calming influence on everybody. It was all about staying safe, closing the borders, keeping us safe, and then then they started to restrict the movement within New Zealand. Yeah, at that time there was sort of no panic. It was just, oh, there's something different, but we're being managed well, it's okay. Um, I guess I didn't try to come back during 2020 because it just wasn't possible. Um, I'd had family visits from Australia to New Zealand that had been cancelled. Obviously, it was like, oh, okay, well, I'm starting to miss everybody now. By the end of the year, and I think, you know, the second lockdown in New Zealand, it's like, this is not going to get any better for quite some time and I need to get home. And my partner was really sympathetic to that because I was missing my family. I've got grandchildren and and my son in in Western Australia. Um, My mum was getting older, my nan. Man who's who was my person was, was starting to really age a lot during COVID. So we started that thought of well, let's get home. And, and at the time, the bubble was opened. So getting home, there was no rush. It's like, okay, let, let's get home now. I, I need to get back with my family. And that's when sort of the process started, I guess. Because there were a couple of bubbles between Australia and New Zealand and the bubbles were burst quite quickly, I think, weren't they? 
Yeah, then they opened up again. I mean, New Zealand, we'd had a couple of lockdowns over there. and But, but you know, life was continuing. We were okay within our, our area. In July, my partner had had a few job offers to bring us back, and then um, the which he had to, to knock back um, because we couldn't get there. And then the bubble opened in July or maybe end of June, July, and he grabbed a job and he was gone within nine days. So then I had a job I had to give notice on, um, so I stayed up our house we were living rurally um then i had to wait for a um a furniture removal um window during that period while he was already over here and i was there then the bubble closed but i'd given notice for my job i'd given notice for our house we were packed up we were within two days of our furniture being picked up and the bubble closed Having packed up her home and given notice on her job, Judy found herself in a limbo not of her own making. And sadly, this was not an unusual situation. Tens of thousands of Australians and permanent residents trying to return home found themselves homeless and jobless, and with no assistance from the Australian government. We were renting. We were renting on a, a, a remote, on a rural farm. Did your landlord, was he or she sympathetic to your situation? Yeah, they were, because um, everybody was in lockdown. Um, our area, um, New Zealand, had gone into the regional lockdowns again as well. So I was kind of stuck. I had a 95% packed house. Um, and I'd worked out my notice on my job. And it was funny at the time, um, all my workmates had come and done a big working bee on our property to help us get out of it, to help me get out of there. And I'm like, oh no, the grass is going to grow again. But you know, in the end, that was the least of my troubles. It was the flight caps that were the problem. And with five cancelled flights, Judy found the posturing of politicians, particularly in her home state of Western Australia, traumatising. Mark McGowan, like all state and territory leaders, was effectively running a police state. I guess it was all aimed on the Premier here. All my, all my distaste from over there, it was like, because he was doing the announcements and he does them in such a personal way um, that it's all about him. So it was sort of focused on, on that. Look, it was a really, really traumatic period and I was emotional. I'm a middle-aged woman. I was in tears every day. It was just so emotional. So I wasn't really feeling open and loving towards anybody. <laughs> So what did you have to do to get home? Look, it was a really tough trying to piece it together. That's where I joined all the Facebook pages, trying to get um, the information on how do I do this. You know, I learnt you had to have your G2G pass. I'd had five Air New Zealand flights cancelled. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Why can I buy flight tickets and then they're being cancelled? So it wasn't until I, I joined all these groups that I understood the flights are still being scheduled because I don't know what's going to happen. But you needed to get your red flights, not your green flights. What does that mean? Well, the red flights were um, seats that were attached to a quarantine place once you got here. And there was very, very few of them. There, I think there was 20 or 25 seats per flight and they only left on a Sunday. And they were selling them a month a month at a time. So they would sell like every Sunday flight for a whole month in, in one release. So I only learned about that sort of at just before they were releasing a new lot. So I went on. It's like, okay, I'm going to go get my, my flight. No, they were gone in 60 seconds. So then it was like, there's a whole month again. How do I do this? 
I learned a lot from social media. That, that's how I learned how to get home. And um, it also helped me understand I wasn't the only one that was kept. By this time, I was couch surfing with friends and, and I had picked up some um, contract work with my employer that I had left. So I was fortunate that at least I wasn't destitute. So missing the release of those red flights, I was like, how am I ever going to get home? By this time, I had um, a couple of credits with Air New Zealand because um, every time you purchased a new flight, they were getting dearer. So you'd, have, you'd use your previous credit and then you'd have more and then I didn't have a lot of cash. Um, they were all sitting there in the credit. And you weren't getting refunds for those flights either, were you? No, yeah. And I understand these are the stories from around the world and they're talking a lot bigger dollars than what I was from New Zealand. So the minute the, the lockdown in New Zealand opened back up, because we were completely locked down again for two weeks, um, as soon as that opened back up, uh, removalist came and grabbed my gear. I got the house cleaned up, got out of there, and then I moved to a friend's house. I became part of their bubble for a while, um, a workmate's, yeah. Then it was um, just a matter of trying to figure out how the hell to get a red flight. I'd missed that. They sold out in 60 seconds. A whole month of flights sold in 60 seconds. It ended up that the only people getting flights were those that had... Um, secure the services of agents because the agents can buy a ticket and secure a seat and then put the personal data in later whereas somebody just logging in online for myself you've got to put your personal data in first and then grab your seat I was never ever going to get a seat that way so I ended up getting some help from a wonderful lady within New Zealand in Melbourne I rang her one day. She was her, her number was given to me by um, by a, a man I met whose wife had just come back the other way. And he said, "Look, try this lady. She was amazing helping my wife get home." And I rang her and she said, "Look, I'm sorry, Judy. You're over there. I can't help you." And because I burst into tears, I think she kind of felt sorry for me. She goes, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll, I'll be your advocate here. I'll help you." And um and then when we got to the next releases, which would have been the flights for October, um. In September, I'm sitting there, my, my partner's on one computer, I'm on the other, ready to grab these seats when they release. And then within less than a minute, they were gone. And because um, I'm just sobbing with my partner on the phone going, oh, my God, I've missed them again. And um, then she rang me and said she got me one. You were trying to get in via Perth, were you? So you were trying to get from New Zealand into Perth rather than actually thinking, you know what, I'm just going to get in wherever I can and then try? Yeah, yeah, because it, it was the same. The flights were, were were the same going to anywhere. So that's interesting that they had kind of what they call red flights and green flights. This is the first time I've heard of this. Yeah, yes. So the green flights were their normal flights that they, they schedule still today and they were still selling them in New Zealand. Yeah, and then they were cancelling. And and that in itself was a seriously disheartening. Like every day I'm watching my email inbox, like constantly waiting for that email saying, your G2G passes, you know, it's approved. You go, yes. Then the next day it's like it's been cancelled. You're like, that just eats away at you. And then the Air New Zealand, your flight's been cancelled, your credit's coming through. And, they, they, you know, they weren't saying we're so sorry. It's just It was just their normal process, you know. You can't, flight's cancelled, here's your money back. Was Western Australia the only state that was doing this red flight, green flight thing? Because as I said, I've, I've not heard of it before. Look, I don't I don't know. I don't think so, but I, I don't know because I was focusing on WA because I thought once I get back to another state, then I'm going to have to quarantine, then I'm still going to have to try and get across the border in Australia. 
After working out the secret to getting a flight, it took Judy from July 2021 to the end of October to get home to Perth. Still, she thinks she was fortunate. So compared to a lot of people, like a relatively short time. I even contacted Department of Foreign Affairs. Yeah, I'm, I'm in New Zealand. I, I need some help to get home. They're like, look, I understand that, but we're really, there's no expat flights being organised from New Zealand. So they, they could help me get back from all around the world because I'd been registering with them, saying, you know, because you, you had to register as a stranded Australian or something. There was no expat flights. They weren't helping anybody get home from New Zealand because there was commercial carriers still running from New Zealand. I'm like, 20 seats a week is not commercial airlines still running. A lot of the airlines didn't particularly mind that they weren't flying passengers because they were still still had cargo flights going in and out of Australia. All those contracts were still very much alive. I'm watching Facebook. There was a lot. There was quite a lot of us stuck over there in New Zealand in the same same position. Um, one of the biggest kicks in the guts was um, not long after the the bubble closed. The All Blacks took a flight from Auckland to Perth and played within two or three days of arriving. They didn't go through quarantine. They were allowed to go, and I was like, I would have served their coffee. On the way, you know, so that doesn't make sense that we're stranded here and the all blacks can get a flight and, and Australians couldn't. I was so angry at the all blacks, and then they showed them swimming at the beach. I'm like, oh, I can't tell you what I said. Um, <laughs> it wasn't just sporting teams that were given special treatment, celebrities and business people were also beneficiaries. Meanwhile, stranded Australian citizens and permanent residents were begging the government for help to get home and were being ignored. Being treated so badly by your own country was one of the hardest things for me to accept longer term. After I got back here, I really questioned my my allegiance to my country, whether I really wanted to even stay anymore, whether I would pack up and go back and stay for good. Um, when your country doesn't help you during this, makes you question your citizenship. I've never personally asked my country for anything. Like I've always lived as a law-abiding citizen and I've done what I've needed to do and I've loved being part of Australia and being with a Kiwi partner. You know, there's obviously a lot of um, you know backwards and forwards, but I really did question that for a very long time uh, after this, yeah. What do you think they just kind of let, left us to fend for ourselves. So wh why do you think there was an, an about face? I don't know. Look, I think maybe nobody knew how big it was going to be, how long it was going to last. The states were all making their own decisions. And, I mean, my family did not even know that I was stuck. You know, my son, who's got a very busy life himself, was like, you're coming back soon? It's like, I can't. And once I had that long conversation with him about what he was, he, as a West Australian, he didn't hear any of what was going on. It was it was kept very quiet on the news in WA. So he was like, are you kidding me? And I think the longer it went on, I think the um, less focus there was on bringing us back home. In New Zealand, there was there was a really um, strong attitude of because um, New Zealand who New Zealanders who leave to go and earn money or, or further their careers overseas, they were kind they were seen as they've gone overseas to earn their money, like, suffer. You can't come back now. You know, sucked in. You can't come back now. You've got all your money. You went and did these big things in the world. Australia, like New Zealand 
blamed its citizens for being outside the country, saying it was our choice to be overseas, therefore it was our fault that we were stuck. Should we have to explain why? Should anybody have had to explain? We had a free world where we could travel. We could buy a ticket. We could get a visa. We could just go wherever we wanted. And we knew we could always come safely back home. Why should we have not had the right to travel and be out of our country for an unknown, unexpected pandemic? Like, hello. My partner had come home at the start, yeah, come back as a New Zealander. He'd come back to work with a backpack on his back and he'd walked straight back through you know, through customs and gone straight to, to Kalgoorlie. It's like, hang on a minute, now I've got to now go through this massive process to get back home. I knew I didn't have to pay it up front. Um, I, knew, I knew it was a requirement. I didn't like it because already my $600 flight for me to originally come home was now well over 2000 plus i had to go through the quarantine zones in auckland um in new zealand to go i had three flights or two flights internally to get to auckland before i could even leave so i had a lot of extra costs so it probably cost me about six thousand dollars to get home when it was going to cost me about 600 i didn't like it but i didn't feel there was there was anything if i wanted to get home i would have done anything to get home And then there was hotel quarantine, introduced in March 2020 as a free public health measure and cost shifted from the government to vulnerable individuals in July 2020. After you're in place and you're feeling safer that you're on your way home or you, it's not until that flight leaves that you actually know you're on your way, right? It wasn't until after that that I really started to like, no, hang on a minute, this is everything now. You can start to think about those details. At the time too, I mean, and I'm, I'm in, I was in my fifties as well, and you know, I, I wasn't my strong self then. I'd been an emotional wreck for a couple of months, and I was, I was feeling, um, I'd been feeling it was all out of my control. Like it's so hopeless. I, I wasn't feeling a strong enough self to have those feelings of about those things at the time. My issue with paying the quarantine started um, once I arrived in Australia because we were treated so poorly. We were treated like leopards. We were greeted everywhere by people with masks and full suits on who didn't speak to us. They pointed. They were. Um, we had older people on the flight. We had a mum with a baby. No one got any help with their with anything. We were just pointed at and moved, shuffled around like like cattle. Um, it was terrible. We've been through a major trauma to get our feet back on Australian soil. And then, then the bad treatment within home started. Got on the bus, you know, we're, we're put into chairs at the airport, um, making sure that we've got everything in place and our G2G passes. And we're, and we're all a metre from each other. Our chairs are all spread out. Then they, they herd us out to the middle of a car park where there's a bus and we're all sitting next to each other on the bus. The bus driver doesn't, it was a smallish bus. It wasn't a little mini bus. It was a, a normal bus, but no social distancing on the bus. We had we had masks and that on, but no one to help with our luggage, luggage at all. Um, we're all helping one another. Same on. And then when we got to the motel, you know, it was quite daunting. A big motel, which you would normally, you know, might have been a four star, but um, you would be normally happy to go to this hotel on holidays and you're greeted by all these suited up people pointing 
they watched someone fall on their knees getting out of the bus, you know, and they didn't come to help. They bought um, luggage trolleys and then wouldn't let us get the trolley until they'd walked away. And it's like, we've had to have negative PCRs before we came into this country. At, at great cost and, and logistics to do that in another country that's still in lockdown itself. And they were treated like that. You, you tried to ask a question and you weren't even answered. It's like we didn't even have the right to ask a question. So we were just supporting one another to get in. And then we never saw those people again because we all went to our individual rooms and then we were all released individually as well. It was terrible, terrible treatment. My room was beautiful. <laughs> I posted to Facebook a, a horrendous photo of a, a dungeon I'd found somewhere on Facebook and all my friends got all up in arms for me because I had this shocking room. <laughs> and then I posted the real photo. They didn't think that was very funny. They were ready to write They were ready to write photos to the uh, letters to the government for me. No, my room was beautiful. I had organised a, uh, an exercise bike for my room and I got grocery deliveries in while I was there because the food was just basic, pure carb. It was horrible, horrible food. But our rooms only had the tiny bar fridges and not even a proper bar fridge. You know, the little glass-fronted ones. So you couldn't even order in decent amount of food. The personal like you had to have your mask on when your, your dinner was delivered they knocked on the door and you weren't allowed to no they didn't knock on the door they delivered it outside your door in a paper bag and you could hear it being delivered but you couldn't pick it up until they phoned you so you knew your dinner was there but you, you weren't allowed to pick it up so they call you and you'd, you'd, you'd stick your head out and the security guards there watching you make sure you had your mask on then you ate your lukewarm food and even um you know, halfway through, we got a bundle of linen delivered so that we could change our beds. Every interaction was a phone call, you can open your door now. We've forgotten that you're human beings. I had really good family advice behind me, and so I had a plan for my mental health while I was in there. Before I went into quarantine, I, um, you know, a lot of people had said, you know, what are you going to do? Um, you're going to be stuck in a room. It's, uh, so it was a real priority for me to have a plan before I went in. <clears throat> While I was in transit, I organised a um, an exercise bike, which was delivered to my room on my day two. I had um, people wool with me to do some crocheting. I had my laptop and I'd organise an extra screen so I could do some contract work from my room. I was also um, started my job search um, in Australia for, for work. You know, I had, I had um, plenty of credits on my phone and you know so I, I thought I was all sorted and I mean I had a, a view of a another building beside me and a horrendous snake mural on the wall and, and down in the alleyway and that's what I saw for 14 days out my window um, but I set myself a plan you know I had my uh, alarm go off in the morning and um, got up and showered and dressed and, and you know got myself ready for the day every day to just get moving but even though I had a plan, it started to fall apart by the second week. I think the food was so poor. I was feeling so low anyway after the, the trauma of trying to get home. I knew that everyone was starting to arrive in town for the grand final that was being played in Perth. Coming in quarantine free, there was a lot of things that um, started to eat away at my plan. I, I saw Facebook, you know, a lot of people were like so up and positive. I was like, oh, they, I need that pill that they're on. I just, I just, by the second week, it was pretty bad. Um, my family were a really good support. Binge watched Netflix. It was really, really hard to maintain. And I had a plan. 
And I didn't have children to look after. I didn't have a partner to, to either do the highs or lows with them. But it was all up to me. I mean, I put in um, online shop shopping with Wool Woolworths and the motel, you know, message was we'll bring it up during this window. Um, we can't bring it up when it arrives. We'll bring it during this window. So you'd have to get it delivered during the window. And then it wouldn't arrive. Your yogurt would come to your door and it was lukewarm. It's like, well, it's been sitting downstairs for a couple of hours to end up being lukewarm, you know, for your dairy. We couldn't even get a toaster in our room. We had a kettle because um, they're not set up as, as mini kitchens. They're, they're mini bars, make a cup of coffee and have a wine in the fridge and that's it. Any interaction that you had <clears throat> was with hotel staff and they, they they tried their hardest, but many of them English was their second language, so you couldn't really have conversations. And the health department staff, you know, ringing up to check on your mental health, it's like you don't even, you sound like you're reading from a book. All they're doing is ticking a box on you. They, they weren't, there was no tips on how to get through, no, no, there was nothing from any professional to help you get through that. We, we certainly did not get contacted every day. I think I got contacted on like, you know, maybe day four and day nine or something. It was... I had one night, um, I was the second room back from the elevators and the, the security guard in the hallway was out in the hallway playing like computer games or something like on his phone with the volume up really quite loud. And it was like 11, 11 o'clock at night and, you know, there, there was all you can hear is this noise up and down the hallway. I ended up putting on my mask and opening my door and saying, can you, like, put your volume down? And the focus wasn't on that he was being a dick. It was all on I've come out unauthorised out of my room. It ended up being a big deal. You know, I got, got a, I got a call from whoever the team leader was, unauthorised exit from my room, and it was like, hang on, I had my mask on. So I found those guys there must have copped a bit of a bit of a curry from a lot of people because they just sat there day and night there to police us to not leave our room. I went on a payment plan. I um I couldn't pay it by the time I got back here um in full. No, I went on a payment plan. I wasn't in any mental state to fight it at the time. I um I lurked on on Facebook and watched people that were that that still had that strength or that anger in their bellies to do that. I I didn't have that in me at the time. I had nothing left. Those of us looking for support use social media strategically. There were a number of Facebook groups that were crucial sources of information during this time. Ditto afterwards when it came to challenging the quarantine fee. Without the Facebook pages, I don't think I would have it would have been a much more difficult process to understand how to get home, but because you learn from mother's findings as well. But I did find that it actually was really negative for my mental health as well, you know, because you're hearing and reading other people's anger, other people's distress and their trauma and their the hard time they're going through. And it was supportive and it was good knowing I wasn't alone, but in a way it, was, it wasn't as well. From your perspective, what has been the effect on you from experiencing this? I mean, obviously there's been a cost to you financially, probably physically, emotionally. 
I, I spent probably the, my first six months back not enjoying being back. I didn't probably, I, I, I thought having my feet back on Australian soil was, was going to be it and I would do, I didn't feel that, I felt relief. I just, I probably felt six months of relief, but still just, um, I don't know, scarred really. I couldn't stop talking about how angry I was. Once I stopped feeling so emotional about it, once you get in the arms of your family and you, you talk it out for a couple of weeks, the emotions start to wane. Wanting other people to understand, but then people get sick of hearing that as well. I I got a job where I could work from home, so I've kind of been a little bit insular at home, really. Like I have the, the most beautiful partner and, and I, I try and remind myself he was traumatised. He was here expecting me to arrive weeks behind him and he was, he then had to set up a house and, and in the wheat belt of Western Australia, not the most, you know, most amazing place, let me tell you. He had me on the phone sobbing to him with despair every day while he's trying to work and set up a house and he's, he's, you know, we're trying to do the lease in both of our names so that at least I could say I had a WA address to try and get me back in. So it wasn't just my trauma, it was his. I mean, he's a bloke and he, he doesn't talk about it. He's fine. Once he's had me back there, he was fine. But, yeah, I'm not sure that I've found my happiness at being home yet. Yeah, it makes you feel shit. It's like I have the right to travel and, and I have the right to come home. But I think um, the McGowan government um, made such a big deal about keeping everyone safe. I think everyone just was in their, their safe bubble and not thinking outside of their bubble. Small business did it a little bit tough, um, did it tough as well, but the the mining companies still kept chugging out their dollars and their sports, they kept all coming across. So coming back traumatised like that to a state where they've been safe in their bubble and happy about that was tough. And nobody, nobody, honestly, nobody was really interested in our story. If my own son, who knew that I was over there, wasn't aware of what our struggle was, the general public wouldn't have known either. What is the message that you'd like to send to the Australian government and Australians generally about, you know, this whole debacle? We had, we had the right to travel. We had an open world that encouraged us to travel and, and see different places. But we also had the right to come home and we are Australian citizens and you forgot about us. You, you showed no empathy towards us. You made it as difficult and as financially hard as possible for us to get home. And you have not looked after our mental health during the process or after the process. The Never Forget What They Did podcast tells our stories because what was done to us should never be forgotten. Music by Les FM on Pixabay. Our stories are released every week on a Sunday. 
You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on dianelee.com.au forward slash never forget.